Energy poverty impacts one in five people. For children, this means they don't have access to lights to read or study by after dark, limiting their opportunities. Solar Buddy is here to change that, and they're doing it with the gift of light. Solar Buddy's innovative corporate program is inspiring, fun, and educational. Through it, you'll learn about energy poverty, renewable energy, assemble your very own solar light, and pen a handwritten note. The lights and letters are then gifted to children living in energy poverty. I recently distributed Solar Buddy lights in PNG and witnessed firsthand the difference a solar light can make. Visit solarbuddy.org and join the growing community of light givers. The future is brighter with Solar Buddy. Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 47 of Goodwill Hunters. Today, I'm chatting to Rosemary Addis, and this is the second of our quarterly podcast series where we get concrete about impact investment, what can grow the market, what you can do and where investment for impact is making a difference. In today's episode, we're taking the focus onto impact with the rapid acceleration in impact management practice and governance. We're putting the spotlight on corporates and the big shakeup in the debate about shareholder versus stakeholder primacy following the US Business Roundtable statement. And we're considering where investment is driving impact for development and inclusive growth, including a wrap-up of G7, G20 and the UN General Assembly. And we'll look at what's shaping up for conference season. Thanks, Rosemary, for being on the show. Thanks, Rachel. Delighted to be back with you today. And it's an exciting agenda to discuss what's the confluence of of activity we're seeing come through from the ESG community into sustainability and into impact with some new actors entering the the market and the and the debate around what impact practice should look like so um, I think there's a lot for people to to take in and some practical opportunities to engage as well that we can cover off today including uh, some live consultation processes that it would be great to have the Australian audience feeding into. Definitely agree. So let's start with some of those trends and themes. Um, So the first thing we wanted to discuss uh, is around some changes in um, regulating disclosures. Um, So this is a really exciting step for climate-related disclosures led by the EU uh, taxonomy and sustainable finance package. So can you start by telling us what that is? Yeah, so this is really one of the first signals that we can expect over time to see more regulation coming in. And it's not surprising that that has started with with climate and sustainability. And the EU has often been a leader in these areas. So the EU taxonomy, for those who are not accountants and, and in the finance sector, is um, you know, it sounds all very technical. But what's important to understand it is it's really the beginning of setting out the the guide rails and and the classifications that are going to inform the um, the way that regulators look at 
what is enabling of adaptation and abatement of, of climate change and go into some broader areas of sustainability. And so I think we can see this as the as the beginning and it will have ramifications well beyond the EU because it extends to different jurisdictions where capital is coming from the EU as well. So uh, I think it's important to understand this is something that's not confined to the EU but is really the, the lead indicator of where regulation might be might be heading and will require much more extensive disclosures of the activities of organisations um, and set, as I said, some, some categories for the kind of information that people need to disclose so that we can get to greater consistency and comparability. There's been a process in place now for about 18 months of starting to develop this regulatory package. The taxonomy, which is this definitional pieces is an important foundation and that's been open for consultation until just last month and while there's still a bit to play out in that uh, there are a lot of people watching this with great interest particularly as sustainable investment roadmaps are developing around the world and we'll see it have a, a big impact given the number of large institutional investors based in the European markets. So can you explain what is the connection between climate-related disclosures and impact investment? Climate and environmental factors are one aspect of the spectrum of impact. If we think about things that uh, that have an impact, positive or negative, they can impact on various things that relate to people and the planet. And climate is one of those areas that has ramifications, obviously, on the environmental side, but also you know, increasingly as we see things play out in places like the Pacific, impacts for people and their livelihoods and as we talk about things like transition to different types of energy generation, et cetera, there is a component that affects people's jobs and, and um, how people will make their livelihoods into the into the future. So, so climate has themes that run across the whole spectrum of, of, of impact. And disclosures are, are often focused at the moment on what the risks are around climate and how that's likely to affect people's businesses or investments. Uh, And what we're seeing um, through impact investing is a more holistic look at at what the impacts are, including to people's jobs and livelihoods and um, and where we can contribute positive solutions as well as looking at, at what the risks are and put alternatives into the mix. Yeah, great. It's so interesting. So the other trend that we're seeing at the moment is around the PRI adopting the SDG initiative. Um, so this goes into um, the the business reporting on the SDGs, which is a collaborative initiative um, by the Global Reporting Initiative and the United Nations Global Compact um, as a platform to accelerate corporate reporting on the global goals. Um, so, so what is the significance of this initiative? So... The timing is good to discuss this because PRI has just had its major international conference in Paris last month, 1,800 delegates, which is a real record for the level of engagement and we're increasingly seeing the you know, mainstream or legacy, depending how you like to think about it, um, financial sector engaging in, in this discussion. And it's significant for PRI to have the Sustainable Development Goals squarely on the agenda because it is moving to a more holistic view of of what is it to be practising sustainable investment. And where I think we can see the debate heading is in the the differentiation between ESG, even integrated 
um, approaches to environmental, social and governance factors in the way that investment decisions are made and a, and a more proactive look at, at, uh, at avoiding harm and creating positive impact. And it's fair to say that, that not all of the market is there yet. And so for PRI as one of the leading industry bodies with such significant signatories to it, to be taking a leadership in this discussion is significant because it uh, it really puts the SDGs firmly into the arena of mainstream investment. When you look at PRI's membership, you know, large portions of the institutional investment market. And when those actors start to look at the sustainable development goals, they're investing through asset managers like the BlackRocks and the index funds of the world. They're also um, investing into, into corporates and into other fund managers. And so we know that as they shift their positions, that's going to have a, an effect up and down the value chain because they're going to be asking different questions of the organisations that they invest in. And I think we can see signs of this in things like the recent McKinsey survey that surveyed both corporates and institutional investors about their approaches to SDG um, and, sorry, and ESG and sustainability reporting. And what people are saying is that, that a lot of this has grown up through the kind of organic frameworks that have been focused more from a social responsibility and ESG perspective, but that as sustainability gains traction as people become more aware of the risks and more focused on how we move things away from harmful effects into positive effects, that it's not giving them sufficient information to make informed decisions. Um, and in the McKinsey survey saw more than 80% of investors actually saying they'd be happy to see more regulation come in to get that kind of consistency and and informed um, information that can inform their their decision making. Um, not surprisingly, fewer of the corporates thought that was a good idea. But um, but the the role of groups like the PRI as the major industry bodies, you know, traditionally has always included both the advocacy with governments around where the policy boundaries and, and activities should be, and also. Um, the practice that that helps to put the building blocks in place and get the right feedback loops in terms of data and reporting, and so um, it's it's very significant to have PRI active in this uh, in this space, and we uh, can expect them to be taking a lead role in advocating in things like the European Union process, and also working with their membership to to actually fill out how this gets done well. And what is the involvement of the UN Global Compact in, in PRI? Were they sort of a, a founding uh, group and would we consider this a win for the UN Global Compact? So the the UN Global Compact is in a, a kind of related organisation in the sense that both UN PRI and the UN Global Compact are organisations that have been auspiced to various degrees or incubated to various degrees through the UN. The PRI now sits in the category where it's considered a supported organisation. The Global Compact sits a bit closer to the uh, to the UN but has corporate members around the world. And then you have other organisations that are that are actual UN um, UN bodies, uh, such as the UN Environment Program, that also is putting out frameworks in relation to finance and investment. So I think you would say that that there's a relationship between these things. All of these groups are involved in the broader work around impact management and and the developing consensus around that. Um, 
I suspect that um, that you would get a different answer on whether you could claim it as a win for Global Compact, depending whether you were talking to Global Compact or PRI. Yes, of course, that makes sense. Um, so I think staying on the topic of SDGs there, you said at the outset of this conversation that there are some live consultations happening at the moment. Um, is part of that um, related to the SDG impact practice standards? Um, and if so, can you explain to us what those standards are and what this consultation involves? Yeah, and in the interest of, of full disclosure, this is an initiative that I've had some involvement in as a strategic advisor, uh, working with the UN Development Program. Um, and it's very interesting because the UN uh, Development Program, or UNDP as it's known colloquially, is uh, not in, usually in the investment space, but increasingly is um, is becoming active as one of the key custodians of the sustainable development goals in the conversation around what it means to be doing SDG enabling investment. Um, they have a number of strands to their initiatives, some of which are about putting more uh, useful market-facing data that comes through their networks and the government relationships they have. That's really important and probably worthy of a separate conversation. Um, the, the practice standards is where they are uh, putting down some guidance in very practical terms around how we can start to operationalise the different sets of principles that are in the market in a way that can give us consistency and greater comparability and address these questions investors are raising and also be true to the to what's SDG enabling and help people authenticate that. So when we look at the market, there's two key questions coming through. When even organisations that are either interested or committed to things like the IFC principles or the GIN characteristics or the um, United Nations Environment Program uh, banking principles or the PRI frameworks, one of the key questions is what do we need to do and how do we do it? And then from the other side, when people are looking at different opportunities where people are holding out that this is something that's contributing towards the SDGs, their question is, well, how do we authenticate that? How do we know? How do we assess whether there's veracity behind that? So where the UNDP is coming in with these practice standards is in a guide to setting your strategic intention and goals impact management and measurement practice and the transparency and accountability that can be certified by um, UNDP accredited certifiers so that people can understand where is there the veracity of, of practice. It helps those who are trying to implement to know how to operationalise some of these principles. It, it sets guidance in terms of the type of uh, of strategies and data that people should be collecting and how they should be setting up for success ex ante as well as ex post. And so it's also about shifting some from classifying activities that have already been done to setting strategies for where people want to go and, um, and helping people to have confidence that what's coming through in performance reporting and benchmarking is both more consistent and comparable but also has that veracity of the integrated practice behind it. So this is really squarely about putting impact at the heart of performance and the first standards uh, which have been penned by uh, our very own Australian um, former S&P boss Fabian Michaud uh, for private equity and they are currently in consultation and we can give you the link to post. Uh, people are very welcome and encouraged to give feedback in a really robust way through to December on the private equity standards and works already commencing on standards for bonds and for enterprises. 
and there's a lot of interest in the market. We've just fresh from consultations in the Nordic states with institutional investors in Paris around the PRI, uh, in London and, and New York with a range of consultations planned for the uh, global south as, as well through Asia, um, China, Latin America, Africa and um, and India to uh, to bring a broader range of perspectives in on these standards. So this is potentially a game changer because it's a, about putting the key building blocks in place for, for good practice that can drive SDG enabling investment. Yeah, so much of that critical infrastructure to drive SDG enabling investment sounds like it's being developed at the moment, which which is really exciting. I think the last uh, trend that we wanted to cover is around impact analysis. So Unilever uh, produced a really interesting report recently, which asked the question, would the highest rated responsible businesses pass the impact test? Um, it's a fascinating question. So can you tell us about uh, that topic and, and that report? Mm. So what we have here is um, the the signalling too that the market is changing in the way that researchers and analysts look for impact and make assessments of impact. And so people have been relying on these um, more bespoke sustainability and impact reports that have been put out by funds and by corporates. Now we have people coming in assisted by um, AI and uh, big data to do more analysis and look more deeply at some of the questions of what's really being achieved behind that. And you've got some very interesting intermediaries springing up in the market that are looking at that and coming up with a very different kind of rating. One of the things that's that's key around that is that taking big data approaches is enabling some of these analysts to look more holistically. So not just look at, at how people are reporting on the specific positive initiatives they're doing, but look at what their effect is in the context of their broader of their broader business, and um, not surprisingly, that gives you a different a different picture. Um, very often, what we what we see is just the kind of report on the positive impacts of a particular um, initiative that is an add on to the to the business or one aspect of the business, um, or classification kind of exposed of of where people think things are making an an impact. What we're seeing is that the the new tools and technology are really helping to inform a more holistic approach and we can expect that to change the way that people are uh, are looking at the impact of organisations and changing the questions that get asked. The Australian Council for International Development is holding their national conference 23 and 24 October in Sydney. Join Australia's aid and development community to discuss the biggest issues guided by thought-provoking speakers. The conference will focus on how we can go beyond aid to champion sustainable development cooperation. For tickets, visit acford.asn.au. We'll see you there. Okay, so from here, let's talk about um, what the role of businesses is and what people individually can do. Um, so where we wanted to take this was there's a debate happening at the moment um, between shareholder versus stakeholder um, value and, and inclusion. So let's start with that. And can you tell us about the recent US Business Roundtable statement on the topic? Well, this is very interesting because the the debate's been going on for a while now around um, you know, the Milton Friedman version of, of maximising um, shareholder value. What does that really mean? Um, are we talking about shareholders today or shareholders longer term into the into the future? Um, and 
there's a range of factors, probably more detailed than we can go into today, in informing that. What's significant about this business roundtable statement is that you've got 180-odd of 193 members of this of this group, including the leading corporates and investors in the United States, coming out and saying we think the role of the corporation is to serve a range of stakeholders, including you know, employees and the environment alongside shareholders. And that this has really given rise to a very significant um, debate. You had some institutional groups come out and quite quickly say, no, this is, you know, this is putting other considerations in primacy over stake over shareholders. So that's not that's not the way that the the law and the obligations work. You had other people saying, well, this is this is business finally coming late to the party and, and realizing that the game has changed and um, and and then we've had others still, including some of the B Corporation network, really challenging these business leaders and saying, well, that's nice that you've put out this statement. What are you going to do about that? And by the way, you know, we are organisations that have sustainability at their core and we've been doing this for a while and we'd be happy to help. And we've seen, you know, full-page ads in, in major financial papers and, um, and in prominent places saying, you know, we... Uh, ready to to assist you in implementing and operationalising this, um, and I think perhaps one of the most elegant statements um, of the impact of this came from David Bank um, and Impact Alpha when he said, "What what's changed here is that a statement doesn't doesn't make it so, but a statement from these actors means that we can now hold them to account to their own words and commitments." rather than expectations others are putting on them. And I do think that is a bellwether of a real shift, um, that once there's been ownership taken of at least the the kind of um, the shift in, in name and that there are broader considerations that go to creating value and sustainability within corporations um, and that that's been uh, something that the corporate leaders have taken ownership of, that that does change what the conversation is then about what happens next. And so, yes, there's a live issue around what actions will flow from that. Um, but I think that point was well made by David that that it's now about holding people accountable to their own their own words. And there will be a lot still to play out on this, but it does represent a you know it's a it's a real bellwether that the sentiment about what the role is has changed. So if you're an organisation hearing this discussion and you're trying to consider who your your other stakeholders are, who your non-financial stakeholders are, how how would you go about that? I mean, it can be things really intangible like future generations, like the environment and, and things like that, the, the groups and, and the things that have a real stake in the way you run your business. But how do you start to identify them and actually consider them in what you're doing? Yeah, it's a great question. I think you know where this group has has gone is fairly safe territory in the sense that it, it's it's other groups that um, make up the 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 capacity and capability of an organisation to operate and to to drive um, value in any event. So it's it's customers, it's employees, it's suppliers, it's it's communities as well as its shareholders, um, and. The um, you know without without customers organisations aren't 
um, going to be successful. So some might say it's a truism to, to say that your customers are part of your stakeholder group who need to be taken into account. An organisation that's not serving its customers is unlikely to be very successful for its shareholders or for anybody else. Um, and so I think in some ways that's a change of emphasis. Where you draw the boundary will be a matter of contention for um, for some people, but I think that um, that there's... Uh, that there does seem to be a kind of broad degree of, of consensus that um, that there are some of these key groups. And we know that organisations that are not paying attention, for example, to their suppliers and their supply chain, that also has quite clear ramifications for their success. You know, if you don't have reliable supply, that can affect your ability of production. If you are not interrogating your supply chain to ensure that people are uh, operating compliant with laws or um, and with the the expected norms in terms of employment practices or child labour or you know modern slavery etc. Then that's a risk for the corporation. So I think some of what's here in terms of the stakeholder groups um, isn't that controversial in terms of of the types of risks that need to be managed in any event for a company to be successful. Yeah, definitely. And I think this is really symbolic of the fact that we've moved far beyond the CSR era. And I think CSR was really characterised by um, considering social and environmental impacts as a standalone part of the business that was kind of more a public relations exercise than anything else. And we now see the commercial value in um, quantifying supposed externalities and really um, actively considering social impacts um, I think it's the execution of that that, that can be mm. quite difficult. The execution can be very difficult, and I think there was a there was a great um, game that British Telecom had for a while on its website where you could, you know, work through certain scenarios, and they had a dashboard of different stakeholders and something that you thought, you know on the surface seemed like doing good and you'd have some stakeholders that were very happy about it and some stakeholders that were less happy. These things are never, you know, never linear geometry in the way that they, uh, in the way that they play out. Um, and I think that um, it's, it's a question of a, a matter of degrees. Um, I think the other thing that's, that's important in the shift and, and will still be a further shift in terms of the level of integration of stakeholder considerations and where people see that as um, as appropriate is we still have a conversation about value versus values and what what that tends to look like is a conversation about um, taking into account a broader range of considerations but still with a view of accruing value to the firm and there's another step again when you talk about how is the firm impacting on uh, people around it, say the communities around it or um, or others and creating value in a broader sense for the community and I think that's that's a debate still to still to play out you're talking about these things in the sense of how they accrue still in a what's ultimately a financial sense to the individual firm or are we looking at how the firms interact as uh, part of the broader society? Yeah, and I, and I remember hearing an interesting suggestion around this once, um, 
that, I mean, obviously, best case scenario is that you can actually engage with all of your stakeholders and have them around the table and do community consultations and, and things like that. But in the absence of that or where that's not feasible, I remember hearing a suggestion um, that in your board meetings, perhaps have an empty chair in the room that says environment and have another chair in the room that says community and in the discussions really be actively taking into account what would those groups be saying to us if they were in the room what would the environment say to us um if if we were having this conversation and i think it's a nice way to i don't know make it a bit more uh, a bit more real i think anything that makes the impact equation or the impact part of the equation more explicit is important everything we do has an impact it's about where it sits on this on the spectrum at, um from positive to negative and you know, I think just putting that into the debate changes things. It's, I say to people, it's like when you buy a red car, all of a sudden you see red cars everywhere. You never knew there were so many red cars, but you realise that you like some of the shades of red and you don't like other shades of red, and it's much more front of mind in your consciousness. And so I think, you know, some of these some of these steps that are symbolic at one level, they do change the way people think about things. And once you once you are turning your mind to that, then it's um, you know then it's hard to to go back from that and um, and it changes the way that people look at things. So I think they can be quite powerful tools. Definitely. So let's now get on to where investment is actually driving impact. And um, so where I wanted to start this, um, the UNDP has recently launched standards to guide the private sector in achieving the SDGs. It's one of the things as, as part of a whole suite of, of measures coming through the impact management project that are helping to make assessments of, of impact, but importantly also helping us ask the questions about where is investment going because we know that, that it's not going to some of the areas where it's most needed. Some of that's because the data is not available or it's obscure. It's hard for people to really see where the where the need is and to understand um, how they can start to look at that through a through a lens of investment. Um, some of it is because it's harder to invest in some of these places like the lower income countries. But we know that even the development finance is currently not going into the lowest income countries um, or areas of greatest need. So one of the things that UNDP is doing is um, is looking at, at the data it holds and trying to shine a light on some of the issues to help direct that capital in a more meaningful way. And there's a lot of information that agencies like the UN hold or that governments hold, but it's not very market-friendly um, and it's not easy for people to really see what the issues are or how they might contribute either solutions that people would then invest in or direct investment into them. When you start to shape things up as they as UNDP has in its pilot work to say, well, in Brazil, for example, where we know that people are burning the Amazon to clear more space for for production of um, agriculture, that you know, it's the fourth largest food producer in the world and 50% of grain is being lost between the point of production and the end point, 50%. Now, if we could change that equation, then a whole lot of positive things would flow from that for individual farmers, for the environment, um, for the economy. And so that's something that's in frame for the for the government of Brazil. It's something that's in frame for the local communities there. 
And there are many points across the value chain where there are opportunities for solutions, one of which has been identified, for example, is, is grain storage infrastructure and, um, and different methods of looking at, at grain storage because a lot literally falls off the back of trucks or is um, just not able to be stored in conditions that mean it can actually make it to market. I think this is a really interesting point and you started off your answer there by saying that development finance is not getting to some of those lowest income, least developing countries. And for me, this speaks to the bigger question of how do we incentivise private sector participation in international development? And in my experience, incentivising in commercial and financial terms is much more difficult than incentivising just for the social good. Um, How... Is sort of what 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 would you say to that? Like, how is how is kind of SDG reporting helping to incentivise private sector participation? So I think there's a few things about that. One is that you know shedding a light with with data and other mechanisms helps people to see the problems in starker relief. And you would hope people look at things like that example I just gave and say, well, that's a problem worth solving. Let's get some of the different groups together who care about this and, and work out how we can align the incentives differently. There's a, there's a number of things too that often people are less familiar with those organi- those um, countries as a place to invest where some of the greatest need is. And so um, sometimes it's about the financial incentives, but sometimes it's also just about reducing what's either real or perceived risk. So you've got some groups, for example, the, the US Development Finance um, institution formerly known as, as OPIC up until this month um, offers political insurance risk, which provides a different kind of incentive or comfort to, to organisations to go into ge- geographies they might not otherwise. There's a great piece in um, uh, in the press at the moment that's come out through um, CDC, the UK Development Finance Initiative, and um, and FSG, which is looking at the new catalytic finance initiatives of CDC, which are going to exactly this point, particularly in relation to um, to investment in Africa. Um, when we unpack and, and you talk to groups like the African Development Bank, they you know start to to talk about an experience that's very foreign to people in a country like Australia in terms of just their um, you know inability to to have some basic transactional capacity available to them, the kinds of things that banks here would take would take for granted. Um, we also see funds in um, that are operating in in many of those lower income countries that may have arrangements with development finance institutions or others um, to access some capital that helps reduce the risk, but they come with lots of strings attached. You know, so they when we've talked to them about some of these developments. Um, just in in the last month, some of them were telling me, you know, that's fine, but if I've got to transact with three different development finance institutions, you know, I'm, I've got three sets of terms and conditions on top of that, and all of this loads up a really small organisation, or um, you know, trying to do a big job in an uncertain environment. So I think there's streamlining that can be done of some of that if we can get the right heads together. There's a job for some of the development finance and other institutions like foundations that actually have some flexibility in their capital to be prepared to really put that where it's needed most and kind of help pull people out of their comfort zones um, and and crowd that finance into some of those areas. And also for groups like some of these multilaterals that have footprint across many, many countries and a familiarity with 
the political and corporate landscape there to help um, some of the other actors coming in to navigate that space in a way that they can have the confidence uh, to to then engage in a way that's really you know meaningful and helpful to the um, to the local communities. And I think that's a really good segue into um, the recent G7 and G20 conferences and how they looked at um, private capital and innovative finance for inclusive growth. So what did that discussion entail? So what we're seeing here is we're seeing the the discussion we've been talking about in terms of the shifts in markets and the, um, the interest from policymakers and multilaterals in um, in private capital as part of the solution coming onto the agenda of, of these um, important bodies. And and they're, they operate at some levels in the stratosphere in terms of connection to the, to the ground, but they have an incredibly important signalling effect into the markets and for people that this is important. And so um, we've seen recently the G20 um, leaders' declarations in, in Argentina and then again in um, uh, in Japan, actually um, referencing the importance of private capital for inclusive growth and sustainable development. We've seen the um, development uh, finance leaders in France recently uh, putting their stamp on on statements around the importance of the impact management and measurement work that's being done and specifically acknowledging the um, structured uh, partnerships that are coming together through the impact management project. This is incredibly important signalling and um, also creates part of an authorising environment for people to, to push forward with this work. Um, of course, it's not a substitute for the creating the environment for um, solutions to be delivered on, on the ground um, and certainly it's it's not a substitute for making sure that, that the work that's done is connected and um, and meaningful to to the people who are actually experiencing the the need, but it does set a very powerful um, frame of reference that that gives people the encouragement and the in the kind of authorization to to get on and do more. So the last the last point then um, is the conference season that's upcoming. So there are four major conferences happening in the next few months. So uh, let's say one of our listeners isn't sure which conference to go to. Um, how would you describe uh, each of SOCAP, the GIN, GSG and Impact Investing Summit um, in a few sentences so they can choose which one to go to? Sure. Well, I think that um, in terms of probably the PRI in person and the gin, which kicks off tomorrow um, in in, uh, in Amsterdam, it's probably like the Court of King Tractors. They're a little bit too late. <laughs> a bit late. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> a bit late. Um, SOCAP, I think, is um, it, you know is a really interesting forum that uh, that is probably a bit more US centric and um, a bit more enterprise focused. Although there's increasing numbers of investors there, um, gin will attract more of the institutional market um, because that's their member base is more of the investor market, um, development finance institutions, uh, um, the institutional investors, um, and they um, will have others who are interested in engaging with those groups, but that's that's a big part of their constituency. Um, and we'll be seeing things come through the press and people can follow that uh, material coming coming through. Um, the 
um, the GSG is really about how do we take this market forward and bringing together uh, people who are doing aspirational and inspirational work together with the uh, people who are leading that effort now across over 25 countries with another 10 or so with, uh, with leadership uh, groups at the national level in development. Um, and so that um, is in Latin America for the first time, which is really exciting because um, that's an area of both fantastic opportunity and uh, and areas of, of great need. And there's uh, at least five national advisory boards across the Latin American countries. And so we can expect a, a really high degree of engagement from people from right across the continent. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much, Rosemary. As always, this has been a fascinating discussion and we will have you back on the show in another three months. Terrific. Thanks, Rachel. It's a pleasure to be with you. 